you watch from home, want to encourage you again, either on YouTube or Facebook, if you subscribe on YouTube or you like us on Facebook, you can get notifications. Um, trying to do more stuff during the week. We do the midweek update, but we've also started to do some devotional times. Stuart and Phil did this past week, and pray that those are a blessing to you. But uh, if you follow us in those ways, you'll be able to see those devotionals and hopefully be encouraged in that way. And also on the website are the notes for today's sermon if you want to follow along as we continue in Acts chapter 2. I do want to read, though, first from Galatians 6.14. The Apostle Paul wrote, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I am to to brag about something, if I am to find glory in something, the Word of God says, may it only and ever be in the cross of Jesus Christ, because it is there on the cross, in the death of God's perfect Son, that God accomplishes what you and I are entirely unable to do. He redeems sinners, and he secures life for those who are dead. At some level, nearly everyone struggles in some way, agonizes over, wrestles with guilt and shame. Human beings were designed by their creator, made by God with a conscience. It's this inner compass that, that reminds us of right and wrong, designed by the creator to function in that way, to, to convict us of wrongdoing. Many people try to smother that conscience, to suppress it, to ignore it, to dismiss it, to, to numb it, in a sea of relativism, you, you may think that's wrong, but I don't. It, it's okay for me. That's just your opinion. You have your truth. I have mine. God said in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. God, the creator of the universe, the creator of mankind, says there is good and evil, and he made that conscience within us to, to help us to see that, to convict us, to know the difference. And so the conscience, Romans 2.15, says it, it accuses, it it convicts, it, it shows us that there is this law written on our hearts that is from the creator and it speaks up against us when we are sinning. That's why people suppress God's truth. That's why they, they twist God's law or, or simply reject God or, or try to redesign God, to remake him in, in an image of their own design because at the core of their being there is this conscience that, that's serving to condemn their sin, that's serving to accuse them, and it causes guilt and shame, and they try to appease that. In fact, uh, 1 Timothy 4.2, it's speaking of false teachers, but it warns of those who so suppress, so deny the internal witness, the internal witness of the conscience that they have seared it. It's like taking a hot iron to it and cauterizing it so that it sort of covers it over with a hard scab so that they can do what they please without any sense of judgment. Not everyone suppresses the conscience in that way. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Galatians 6.14 and said, "May I, if I boast in anything, may it be in the cross of Jesus Christ, knew he was a sinner and he didn't try to deny it, didn't try to suppress that, and said Paul desperately tried to appease his guilt for sin by what he thought were good works, by trying to perform before God. That's why he uses in Galatians 6.14 that word boast. 
Paul knows one day he will stand before God, his creator. And so it's in his mind, prior to his salvation in Christ, the idea that he's going to draft a resume of accomplishments. These are the things that I've done that are worthy of your approval, God. The problem, of course, is short of perfection, there is no such thing as good enough in God's economy because God is perfect. He is without blemish. He is without sin. When he made creation, when it was complete, he said all of it was very good. And then man comes. Man who is the chief recipient of God's kindness, whose response to all that God has done should be thankfulness and praise. Instead, it's rebellion and mutiny against God. Instead of humbling himself before God, man's attitude is, I got this. I can do this myself. I can be like you. I can do what I want to do, and I don't need you. That's why God doesn't accept human performance. We cannot earn his favor. We cannot bring religious deeds before him and, and somehow win his approval. Titus 1.15 says that the mind of man, apart from Christ, his mind and conscience is defiled. Ephesians 4.17 speaks of man's thinking as being futile. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The, the point in all of this, and the, the, the reason that I'm beginning here this morning, is it reminds us again what a helpless state we are in before God. The fact that we are lost, that we are dead in sin, that we are unable to make ourselves right before our Creator, that we are not able to commend ourselves to Him, unable to lessen the guilt of sin. But God. Scripture is replete with statements of God's grace. Romans 5, 8, but God shows, us, shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ephesians 2 talks about why we deserve God's wrath and then says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, but God is merciful. That's why the cross of Jesus Christ and the suffering and death of the Son is at the core of what we believe cross is where sinners are made right with God. The cross is where we are all humbled to bow and to realize that we cannot bring works or performance or religious activities. We have no advantage one person over the other. We come to the cross as sinners in need of salvation from Christ. It is there we confess our weakness, our sin, and we repent and we acknowledge that Jesus satisfied God's wrath, that Jesus alone brings about salvation from guilt and shame and sin that we deserve. Acts chapter 2 is where we are. Today is Palm Sunday. It's easy to lose track of the days when our calendars seem irrelevant for the most part to us. One day just sort of blends into another. Today is when Christians Remember Jesus Christ coming into Jerusalem, a week that begins with this acknowledgement of him in some sense, albeit a, a very short-sighted view by those who are waving the palm branches, but it also launches us into the week that ends with Jesus nailed to a cross and buried in a tomb. It is not until the next Lord's Day, the start of the new week, that we celebrate the resurrection, but this week ends with Jesus Christ in a tomb. We must never forget 
the cross. We must never move the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to the, to the back seat, especially in the midst of the hardships we are now experiencing and the pain that some are enduring. It is so easy for so many other things to crowd our vision, our minds, our attention, to clamor in front of us and cause us to focus inwardly. In fact, what we are going through today is all the more reason we must meditate on what the Savior did on the cross, to ponder again Jesus Christ taking the wrath of his Father and bearing it in our place on the cross, and we should be filled with gratitude for that sacrifice. The cross is central to this first Christian sermon that that Peter preaches. It's Acts chapter 2. We've seen this already. We've moved all the way through verse 21 so far. A crowd of pilgrims has gathered. They are Jewish pilgrims who have come from all over the known world to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, this spring harvest, and suddenly they are drawn by the sound of a violent wind, sounds like hurricane sort of force wind, and they they begin to gather to the place where they hear this wind, and they see these flames of fire hovering above people who were known to be followers of Jesus of Nazareth, and so they are seeing something, hearing something that's unusual, and then to top all that, they hear the sound of of some of the closest disciples of Jesus now speaking about the works of God in various languages that pilgrims from different places could understand, but it was not humanly possible for the disciples themselves to have known these languages on their own. They they didn't suddenly study this and acquire this. This was a gift from God. So something strange is happening, and this crowd of onlookers is confused, and they are watching And trying to understand it, and it's in the midst of that that Peter stands up. He is the spokesman for the follower of Jesus at this point. And he begins to explain from God's word what they are witnessing. We read last week as he quoted from Joel chapter 2 and explained essentially that there's two coinciding events that are happening. There's one that they're seeing right before their eyes in this moment, and there's one that precedes it. Both are important. In fact, the one that preceded what's happening before their eyes. That's the one that initiates all of this wind and speaking of languages. What the Jewish pilgrims saw in that moment, the incident that was happening in front of them was God pouring out his spirit. He is filling, he is empowering his people. The Holy Spirit is coming from heaven, the sound of rushing wind, and he is coming upon these disciples. But what preceded that was the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven as the master and savior of his people. We're going to pick up this morning in verse 21, but I want to look for just a moment toward the end of the chapter to help you see the the purpose and the goal in Peter's sermon. If you'd look at verse 32, Acts 2, verse 32, this is still Peter preaching. He has preached about the cross and the resurrection, and he says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, David says, quoting from the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord 
and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter is saying what you're, what you're seeing and hearing here, as I've already preached to you, is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what he says in verse 33, that this is what you're seeing now and hearing is this pouring out of the, the promised Holy Spirit. This is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 that, that we looked at last week. That is fulfillment of prophecy from about 800 years before that God said his spirit would come upon all flesh. But the coming of the spirit didn't just happen at some random moment in history. It happened because, and that's why he says, verse 33 again, therefore, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It is the ascension of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified and dead, the fact that he has now ascended, risen and ascended, now brings about the pouring out of the Spirit. David Peterson, a commentator, writes, what the crowd at Pentecost could see and hear were signs of Jesus' exaltation to the situation of absolute glory, power, and authority in the universe. As the dispenser of the Spirit, he was now acting with the Father, sharing fully in his heavenly rule. In the ascension, Jesus Christ is exalted. And so what Peter is is saying to the crowd here is you are seeing the Spirit of God, but I'm here to tell you that we, and he said this back in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. By the we all, he's not including the crowd, he's talking about all of the disciples at this point. We all are witnesses of the risen Jesus Christ. You're seeing the pouring out of the Spirit. We've seen the risen Savior who has indeed ascended into heaven. Jesus whom you crucified, did not remain dead in the grave. We saw him alive, resurrected, and that living, resurrected Jesus is now Lord over all and Savior. And that's his conclusion there in verse 36, that, that let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's where Peter's taking them in this sermon. That's where this has been pointing toward. You, you must be saved in order to receive God's Spirit, and in order to be saved, you must understand who Jesus is. And so that's why he begins, when we go back to verse 21, with the truth about Jesus. Acts 2, 21 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So verse 21, let me start there because that's the end of the, the reading from Joel's passage, and it, it reminds us again of the fundamental problem of man. Same problem Joel was addressing. Joel says, God has come. He has worked in your midst. He has done mighty deeds. You have turned on him. You have rejected God. And therefore, God has brought judgment upon you. But God, and we saw this in, in, in the book of Joel, God, who is merciful and gracious, is providing you a way of salvation. 
If you will call on the name of the Lord, Peter now goes back and he quotes that and says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What happened in Joel's day, man turning his back on God, is what Peter's now accusing the crowd of, of having rejected God and in need of salvation, saying the, the same thing that we proclaim when we proclaim the gospel, that people sometimes find odd to hear. You need to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the judgment of your own sin. Saved from rejecting the God who created you. You are in desperate need of rescue. Whether you want to believe it or not, your creator is telling you that those internal twinges in your conscience that, that accuse you, that cause guilt and shame, are there to demonstrate, to prove to you that you are lost and in need of being saved. Saved from the guilt of your sin that the just wrath of God will punish. Deservedly so. But God is merciful. Joel said it. Peter says it. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And who does Peter then immediately when he says, but there's hope, there's salvation. Who does he immediately turn to? Verse 22, men of Israel, listen. Jesus of Nazareth is the one. Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, where he's going, verse 36, this Jesus, this one, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this one whom you crucified. That's where he's going to get to is to say Jesus is Lord and Savior. And he begins here, Peter's sermon now starts with beginning to explain this about Jesus. So it's, we're, gonna, we're taking this one sermon and we're stretching it out over a few Sundays. And so it gets easy sometimes to maybe miss the the forest through the trees, and that's why it's helpful to connect these pieces. The sequence is, you've seen the Holy Spirit come. You've witnessed the wind and the flames and the speaking in languages, and you now desire this. Well, first, you must call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and therefore I need to tell you who that Lord is, and it is Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, who was risen, who was ascended, and who is now made Lord and Christ by the Father. And so what Peter does in this couple of verses, we're going to just spend the rest of our time on 22 and 23, is three irrefutable truths about Jesus. Three irrefutable truths. One is Jesus was proven by signs, he was delivered up by God's plan, and he was killed by wicked men. Proven by signs, delivered up by God's plan, and killed by wicked men. The, the fascinating thing, though, about these three truths that Peter's going to put in front of them to begin to make the case for why Jesus is the one who saves is Peter's audience was already intimately familiar with the first and the third of those irrefutable truths, the fact that he was attested to by signs and killed by wicked men. They knew. They either had, had witnessed it firsthand or they had heard from plenty of firsthand witnesses who had seen the life and ministry of Jesus and who had just witnessed just seven weeks earlier the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus. The, the second one, that he was delivered up by God's plan, is one that, that they would need a little explanation for. They had witnessed it, but they needed a little understanding and teaching. But first, it says Jesus was proven by signs. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Luke could not be any more clear as he's recording Peter's words here that this is something that you know what I'm talking about here. 
This is not foreign to you. Jesus was proven by signs. He did the things that he did in public. He was witnessed. People saw from the, the turning of the water into wine and the healing of the sick and the giving of sight to the blind and the feeding of thousands with food that was just enough for a handful of people, even raising Lazarus, who has been seen alive. You've seen these things. Jesus did them. It is God working through him in your midst, as you know, and it is God attesting to who Jesus is. That word for attested has the idea of demonstrated, shown, exhibited. In fact, it was used in Greek culture to speak of one who had satisfied the qualifications to hold an office. This one has, has demonstrated that this person is, is proven or qualified. When we talk about candidates for, for deacons or for elders. We talk about somebody who, who meets these qualifications and who must demonstrate themselves to be proven. That word attested has that idea. Peter's essentially starting to lay out the case and say, I am going to show you, I am going to prove to you that Jesus of Nazareth, that man that, that you rejected, is qualified to be both Lord and Christ. And so he starts by saying, you yourselves know what God did in your midst through Jesus. You would have to fundamentally pretend that everything you saw didn't happen. You would have to somehow make up excuses for all of the things you've heard and all of the witnesses who've told about how Jesus fed and healed and, and resurrected, all of these things, including the fact that we stand here knowing that our own lives have been in danger from people, and we now stand here telling you that he is risen. We have seen Jesus resurrected. These are things that could only be attributed to the power of God. It happened, you saw it, and it is an attestation of the fact that he is who he says he is. Second, Jesus was delivered up by God's plan. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This one had also unfolded in front of Peter's audience. They just didn't understand all of the theology that was happening behind the scenes. They didn't know it when it was happening, and Peter's now explaining it. What, what Peter's doing is he's putting something together here for them that, that may start to make sense at this point as he, as, as he describes it here. How is it possible that Jesus attested to by mighty works and wonders and signs, the one who did such powerful things, how is it that this mighty man of God could be arrested and executed without so much as even a fight? How, how is it that one who is so great, who witnesses have described him walking on water, witnesses have seen Lazarus who he called out of the tomb, how is it that he ends up on a Roman cross nailed there? Did Jesus become powerless? Did God the Father suddenly abandon him? And Peter says, no, no, on the contrary. The only way that the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers could successfully conspire to execute the Son of God was because it was God's plan and because the Father delivered the Son over according to his plan. The, the only way this could happen it's because God is at work in this, accomplishing his own good will. Jesus says exactly this to Pilate. If you remember during the trial before Pilate, and, and, and Pilate sort of naively believes that he's in charge. He's governor of the region, and so he can decide Jesus' fate. 
And, and Pilate says in John 19, do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Some in, in, in that crowd, when Jesus Christ was arrested and condemned and crucified, and even some in this crowd here in Acts 2, somehow had the, the misperception that Jesus apparently is actually weak. He didn't overthrow Rome. He didn't stand up to them in some way. His arrest and crucifixion seemed to prove weakness. But Peter, who already has reminded us that this Jesus did mighty works and wonders and signs, is now saying the reason that Jesus was crucified is because this was God's plan. He was delivered over by the Father, the perfect Lamb of God had to die. Just as the prophets foretold, just as Isaiah 53 describes, there had to be a sacrifice for sinners. There had to be one who would bear our sins. The forgiveness of our sins rested on this, on the sacrifice of the Son, on him willingly standing in our place and taking God's just wrath for our sin in our place to save a people for himself. Acts 2.23 is, is a bold and clear assertion of God sovereignly accomplishing his will. The cross was not some glitch in God's plan. It was God's design that the Son of God would come and live a sinless life in obedience to the Father and would submit himself to the cross as a substitute to satisfy God's wrath so that you and I can call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Divine purpose was at work in the crucifixion. He was proven by signs, delivered by God's plan, and third, he was killed by wicked men. The sovereignty of God never excuses or justifies man's wickedness. Jesus was delivered up by God the Father, but he is nailed to the cross. And that's the idea of the word here for crucifixion. It is the idea of being attached to or nailed to a cross. That is what crucifixion is. He is nailed to the cross and killed by lawless men. And Peter is making it clear that his blood is on your hands. He's not only by lawless men. In fact, he says, you crucified and killed. Those lawless men were not some unknown historical figures from, from a ways back. Certainly, as Peter's describing this here, he is including Pilate and Herod and, and the Roman authorities and soldiers who are involved in this. He's, he's including all of the Jewish religious leaders who incited the hatred against Jesus and pleaded for Jesus' execution. But Peter's indictment is brutally clear. You did this. You crucified and killed. You are guilty of the death of the one whom God has made both Lord and Christ. In one united act of rebellion against God, you killed his anointed Messiah whom he sent to save you. The one that he proved to you was Lord through his mighty works and wonders and signs. Now, Peter's sermon didn't end there. We know this, the cross was not the end for Jesus, because as soon as he indicted them, that last phrase in verse 23, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, his very next words are, God raised him up, death could not 
hold him. Peter immediately moves to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we celebrate that glorious truth, and we will, we will celebrate that next week when we move on on Easter Sunday and we think about the resurrection of Jesus. But for now, for today, in the midst of all of the, the grief and sadness and searching and uncertainty and fear and trouble of this day, of this Lord's Day, of this Palm Sunday. Today, when we are so tempted moment by moment to turn inward and to focus on ourselves and feel sorry for ourselves on this day, on every day, we need to pause and look to the cross of Jesus Christ and to reflect again on the anguish of the perfect Lamb of God and at our sin being heaped on him. My pride, my resentment, my anger, my hatred, my lying, my lust, my idolatry, my envy, my petty selfishness. We're all punished in Jesus as if he had done those things, and he never did. Peter, in that statement, indicts all those who are standing before him, but you and I are all participants alongside of them. We're not spectators to this. It's our sin that betrayed Jesus, that demanded his suffering. It's our sin that must be repented of. It's our sin that he bore on that cross. We come into life as enemies of God and deserving his wrath. And it is only by his grace and mercy that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you have been called and enabled to believe fully in the death of Jesus Christ in your place. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his death, his triumphant resurrection, and his ascension, and his coming again that we rest today without fear, and with full assurance of an eternal hope. We have peace today in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we who are trusting in you as Savior, we acknowledge how quickly we can, we can turn inward, we can bypass the cross, we can become wrapped up in our own worlds, our own temptations, our own sin. Thank you again for, in your word, through the truths of the New Testament, repeatedly calling us back to the cross. as the place where our sin is, is punished and dealt with your suffering. Lord Jesus, thank you for, for willingly standing in our place, for being that lamb who laid down his life for our sin. Lord Jesus, thank you that the, the story doesn't end there, that as we are praying to you now, it is because we know that you are risen and ascended and you hear the prayers of your people. And so we worship you. Lord, if there's anybody watching this, listening to this in some way who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, we plead with 
you with the working of your spirit to this day to bring them to that place of, of surrender, of acknowledging that there is no performance, there is no earning. This is not about works. This is not about religious deeds. This is not about being good enough. This is about resting fully in the grace of God that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ and believing that he, the perfect Savior and sacrifice, took our sin and died in our place and rose again to conquer sin and death. We worship you, Father, for this sovereign, divine plan to redeem a people, to take a rebellious, mutinous people and in the midst of their idolatry, in the very heart of it, while we were yet sinners, executing a plan that sent your son to die in our place so that you might redeem a people for yourself. We worship you, we praise you, and we thank you. Help us as we enter this week, another week of uncertainty on so many levels. Help us to communicate your truth in whatever venues you give us, be it on social media or by text or Zoom or phone call. May we be faithful to uphold the truth that there is a Savior, this Jesus of Nazareth, who was made Lord and Christ. And he is ever-present with his people bringing us peace and hope and comfort in this time and for all of eternity. It's in his name we pray. Amen.